Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Good morning, everyone. My name is Brandon Buller. I am the church planning resident here at New Life. Um, And if you are thinking to yourself, well, we haven't seen you around in a little bit, you'd be right. Um, I haven't been here in a couple months now, and there's a reason for that. Um, I have been on loan uh, at a sister church uh, leading worship. So uh, there's a church down in Indianapolis. So I've been there on Sundays. So uh, my heart's been with you guys, but I've been doing other things. just so you know where I'm at in the process, I just completed my last uh, written exam uh, Friday. Uh, so if you wouldn't mind praying for Pastor Brian and for him to have mercy as he grades it uh, this week, that'd be great. Um, but if all goes well, by November 10th, I will be ordained uh, as a pastor. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited about that, really looking forward to what's, what's next. Um, but today, uh, we are going to be hearing from the Lord from Romans chapter 8. Um, the picture of this sermon, and yeah, you can see the sermon title is, God Graciously Gives How Justification Matters Today in This Life. Certainly matters for the next life, of course it does, but why it matters in this life. Um, our text will be Romans eight twenty-eight through 34. Um, And as as I mentioned, uh, the overall picture is to get a good handle on justification, to define justification, that's a pretty big word, um, and understand why it matters for us here. Um, Yes, God graciously gives us all things, right? Since you are justified, you have no need to fear. Um, If you want to live fearlessly as a Christian, no matter what the world can throw at you, then this sermon is for you. So, without further ado, would you please stand as I read for us? Um, If you want to open your Bibles, it's probably a good idea, page 550 in the Bibles that are in the pews. Um, If not, maybe download the ESV app, and that's a good way to look as well. Chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those things are true of us, okay? And so what? That's what the next verses will tell us. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Let's pray together. God, would you give us confidence in our justification today, knowing that we can withstand anything that the world might have for us because you sent your son to die for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, there are going to be three sections to the sermon that correspond to the three questions that we just read uh, from Paul. Who is against us, who accuses us, and who condemns us? And I don't think it's a surprise 
that these questions are actually surprisingly relevant today. I think it's quite fitting in the current climate for the Christian. Now, the Roman context, let's, let's be clear, uh, Christians were literally being condemned to death, okay? Uh, there was persecution of the church in ways that are unprecedented today. But um, it might not be as violent for us as it was for Rome, but, but the church is under scrutiny, right? Can we agree on that? The church is under scrutiny. But if God graciously gives us all things, then since you are justified, you have nothing left to fear from this world. Question one, who is against us? Verse 31, if you want to keep your text open. Verse 31, who is against us? Well, being against something was, was certainly pretty common. Like in the Roman persecution, many were against Christians. You had Nero, who was the emperor, who blamed Christians in Rome for the great fire in 64 AD. But it doesn't need to be quite as big as the emperor of the world being against you. Being against you can be a billion small things. Obstacles in your faith. Comments designed to belittle Christians or make Christians doubt Extra hurdles because you believe in Jesus. It doesn't take a lot for something to be against you. Somebody might make a comment like, uh, maybe modern science is more equipped to define a child's life than religion is. Or uh, the church needs to stay out of defining marriage and stay out of the political space. I think we hear that all the time, right? Many, many people are against Christians. And it happens in all sorts of places too. For example, teachers, you might have demands on what topics you're allowed to discuss in class. Students, sometimes, I don't know if anybody here is a Ball State student, but I can remember when I was at Ball State, uh, they would say, think objectively about this essay. Don't let your religion influence your answers as you write the essay. Um, you might be an employee at a company with uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion regulations that promote things that Christians ought not promote. In general, I think it's, it's just almost every day that we hear the world and society saying, we would be better if Christianity sat back and listened, or that religion is actually in the way of society's progress. I hear comments like, uh, Christians are on the wrong side of history all the time. What are some responses that we naturally would go to when we hear things like that? Well, um, certainly our posture towards a threat like that would be maybe trembling, anxiety, defensiveness, maybe getting angry at such comments. We might enter fight, flight, or freeze mode. And there are Christians, I think we can see this too, that Christians really would love to stick our heads in the sand sometimes and just kind of cloister up and say, leave us alone, world, we're over here. I'm just going to stay quiet and stay out of the way. And other Christians do get really, really defensive, right, and get angry and make sure everybody knows exactly how evil and wicked we see that the world is. It's like our fists are up because we can't stand to see our faith community come against the ropes and lose our foothold in society, and we're ready to fight back. So what is the correct response to Paul's question then? Who is against us? And how should you think about your behavior when somebody is 
against you? Well, I think it's a valid question. I think Paul assumed that we would have a list, just as I mentioned, of things ready to go. When he asks who is against you, he assumes that you're going to have something to populate your answer. There's going to be something to put there. He wants you to begin to fill in the blank before he offers this answer that will subvert all those things that are against you. Okay, and what is his answer? In verse, one, he, verse 31, he says, If God is for us, who can be against us? So his answer is, God, the creator and ruler of all things, is for you. He's so much for you that he gave his only son up for you. What difference does this make? Well, for starters, God is for you. We have backup. And let's just imagine one of these situations, like if you're a teacher or if you're a worker in your workplace, and those situations that I mentioned before of DEI things or, uh, or uh, somebody pressing hard against you, just think if, it, if you had somebody in your corner saying, no, actually, you know what, Christian, I agree with you on this one. That makes a difference. It gives us confidence. But what if that person is actually your boss or your superintendent, and they say, I'm for you? That makes an even bigger difference because they have some authority to actually back you up. But finally, imagine that it's actually the creator of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, who defines all morals, who works all things together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose, who backs you up. This text is saying that, yeah, it it might be true that people are against you, but you have God himself to back you up if you are found in him. He is for you, though, indeed, the world is frequently against you. In fact, he's for you enough that even the death of his son wasn't too high of a cost for him to pay in order for him to be on your side. If you look at verse 32, that's exactly what Paul says. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This text pushes us away from fear. It pushes us away from defensiveness. In fact, it's the opposite that's true. If God is for us, then the attacks and the maligning of the culture surrounding us, they kind of don't add up to that much. He's saying those things are totally relativized because God is for you. You can stand firm no matter what comes your way, knowing that God did everything he can possibly do to be on your side when opponents rise against you. And we can see that's actually true in Jesus himself, right? Jesus wasn't defensive when the religious rulers stood against him. He did not run away when they mocked him. He stood firm. And he engaged with them because he knew, what? That the Father was for him. Nobody could stand against him because he knew that the Father was for him. And if you're, in, if you're found in Christ, you too can be assured that God is for you too. Remember that God graciously gives all things to Christians So since you are justified, you have nothing left to fear in this world. 
So then question two. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That's found in verse 33. That's Paul's question, and once again, he's, he's writing to people who could say, yeah, we do have charges against us. There is a positive answer, an answer that is yes. Remember in Paul's own life, he faced several charges. He was arrested on multiple occasions. So it's not just this made-up abstract question in his mind. This really happens. He would have had a specific and definite answer to his, to his own question. And his assumption is that many Roman Christians who he's writing to, and even Christians who came after him, would be able to have definite answers also. So who brings a charge? Paul would say, well, uh, the Romans can bring charges, right? The Jews can bring charges against Paul. In fact, the Sanhedrin can bring charges against God's elect, God's own son, Jesus Christ. So a lot of people can bring charges against God's elect. But bear in mind Paul's rhetoric here. He's saying that, that a charge, this is, this is like somehow bigger. It's a bigger deal than just something being against you. It's upping the ante a little bit. So as things get worse for you, I have more comfort for you. Okay, we can illustrate this, right? Um, we see from today's political situation that it's a different thing to say, I'm against uh, former President Trump than it is to bring a charge against former President Trump, right? That's a bigger deal. It's the same thing with President Biden. A lot of people can be against President Biden, but we'll see if there's charges that are brought against him. That's a bigger deal. That's upping the ante. What happens when somebody raises the stakes against Christians? What happens when charges are brought against us? In the United States, in increasing, in increasing measure, there are actually charges brought against Christians. This is not made up. There have been lawsuits, so even Supreme Court cases, uh, about the Christian free exercise of religion. And now they're civil suits, right? They're not, they're not criminal charges, but um, there are cases regarding uh, baking a cake or creating a website that would promote or seem to endorse non-heterosexual marriages against Christians. So it's not outlandish for us to start thinking about what if charges are brought against us? Now, I would imagine no one here today has a lawsuit against them, or at least I would hope not, but we can think of accusations that are relevant to us, can't we? Even if they're not uh, brought before a, a judge according to the law of the land, we can think of lots of places where accusations, real charges are brought against us. I'll bring up one right now, and that's in the social media space, right? Uh, charges are all over social media against Christians. One specific example is in Reddit. Some of you are familiar with Reddit? It's, it's a website where uh, you can kind of post anything you want to and have all sorts of people respond to it at their own will. Um, there's a subreddit called CMV, Change My View. Okay, and people will, will say a statement and then say, like, let me have an argument as to why I shouldn't think this anymore. But some of them are this. These are some of the headlines on this subreddit. Christianity is a slave religion. Whoa, that's quite a charge. Uh, the world would be so much better without Christianity. Christianity, is an organized, Christianity as an organized religion is fundamentally flawed, cultish, fake, 
and full of liars. Wow. I didn't realize that that was what we're doing here today. Um, uh, another one, Christianity is evil. Wow, those are, those are some real charges, aren't they? Charges that Christianity as a religion is evil. No, I mean, I can ask you guys, do we impose our beliefs on others? Are we hateful? Are we misogynistic or bigoted? Are we a cult? Are we liars? Are we evil? I don't see those things to be true, uh, but it does make my heart feel pretty defensive when I read those kinds of things, right? Or, or, or sometimes I even feel ashamed at some of the things that these people bring up about me or my fellow Christians. But it's also in published news, and I want to give one more example here. Uh, the Citizen Times newspaper in Asheville, North Carolina, has this Ask the Editor section. Most newspapers do, but um, in Asheville, a Christian uh, wrote into the editor and asked about uh, what the editor thinks of his view of homosexuality as a Christian. He said, I don't hate anybody, I just trust in the religion that I believe is true. And the response from the editor of this newspaper says, by definition, those opinions make you, my friend, a bigot. And he goes on and he says, and a belief isn't rendered any less bigoted because it's embedded in a larger moral code, like, say, the Bible. No amount of religious fervor or tradition can make a wrong thing right. Now, I wanted to read that whole quote because I wanted to get to the last sentence. It's kind of absurd for the editor of a newspaper to say this. No amount of religious fervor can make a wrong thing right. In other words, the editor of this newspaper is now judging. He's the judge and the jury of what is right and wrong. You see that? He, made him, he put himself over all religions of the world to claim what is right and what is wrong. So who can bring an accusation against God's elect? That's the question, right? Well, uh, a lot of people on social media certainly can. The editor of the Asheville newspaper certainly can bring a charge against God's elect. Just like Paul, we can say, yeah, people bring charges against us. But the point of the question is, again, it's, it's not to cause dismay or alarm or defensiveness. It's to give confidence to Christians. Let's look at his answer, and we'll see why. It is God who justifies. Simple statement, right? This answer, though, it's, it's a little bit surprising um, because he doesn't say, here's some potential responses that Paul could have said. He could have said, step one is to grab your arms, we're going to war, right? Your accusations are unjust, and we're going to pound you until you release those charges. That could have been a response. In fact, he, Paul does not make any response that expects you to meet the demands of your accusers. In fact, the statement, it is God that, who justifies, doesn't include you at all. Justification belongs to God, not to you, not to society, not to any other person or group of people. In fact, that's the only way that it can be. Right? Remember the news article I was, I was kind of uh, speaking about a second ago? Do you think that that editor would have been convinced by a gentle 
thoughtful, logical, and sound biblical response? I actually don't think so. I don't think that he was ready to hear it. He had put himself as the judge over all religions already. So, don't trust in your justification through a newspaper editor. Right? You don't need to be justified by him. Justification by him doesn't matter in a certain sense. You might be considered a bigot in his eyes. And we need to reckon with that. We need to recognize we might be considered bigots according to the Asheville newspaper or by his readership in Asheville or by the culture that we live in overall today. And that is a tough pill to swallow, right? But the measures of right and wrong have been so skewed that there isn't a proper evaluation by the culture itself. Right? It is God who justifies, not the culture. We can't trust in the culture to do that. So then our role is to trust that our justification is only through God. And furthermore, if you desire to be justified by the world, then you're looking to be justified in the wrong place. There's only one place that matters to be justified, and that is before God. And I would imagine that this is actually something that causes a lot of people to not become Christians. It causes them to to stand back and not want to become a Christian, or it causes people to deconstruct their faith because they still want to be justified by the world rather than by God alone. But it is God's justification only that can lead to eternal life. And that doesn't mean that that we don't need to interact with people who would accuse us of wrongdoing and, and act like that doesn't matter. It does matter, and it can actually cause real job loss, real hurt, real harm. In fact, in 1 Peter 2, 12, it does say, when, when people speak against us as evildoers, the call is to, is to do good deeds so that they may see good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Right? So we are called to be, um, to be uh, doing good deeds and, uh, so that others may see our good conduct, our Christian morality, our Christian charity, and so that they may glorify God on the day of visitation. But on the day of final judgment, there's only going to be one kind of justification that matters, and it won't include the justification of the world. It will only include justification in the eyes of God. And the good news is, Christians have received that. That is the good news. Paul's answer to the question that it is God who justifies, it provides comfort to Christians. It provides peace to Christians who are accused because God's justification rests on one thing alone, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. And if you've put your faith in Jesus, then you have received this justification by God. That means that you're not justified once you get your life cleaned up and you stop sinning once and for all. It means that you won't be justified according to your good works. It means you're justified the moment that you put your faith in Jesus. And God sees you as righteous from that point onward. And that's really, really good news. Even though our accusers, it seems like they're going to continue to become more and more numerous. Maybe they'll levy greater and greater accusations against us. Our justification means that we are guiltless before God, and we do not lose it based on the craftiness of the world's accusations and charges. So Christian, if you receive an accusation, if you read some comments online that accuse you, 
Just remember that God graciously gives all things to Christians, and since you are justified, you have nothing left to fear from this world. So then question three, the last question of the passage here from verse 34 is, who is to condemn? Okay, and condemnation is a further amplification of these words. We started with somebody being against you, and then it was bringing a charge, and now this third one is the highest of all. Because condemning is the thing that happens after you've received a charge and then also been declared guilty. Right? Once all the evidence has been weighed together, you receive a guilty verdict and you await your sentencing. That's what condemnation means. Now, immediately, you might think that verse 34 is less relevant because nobody I can think of or that I know personally is being condemned for being a Christian right now, right? Like you're not going to jail because you're a Christian. But I do want to mention that that isn't the case worldwide, right? It's a gracious thing that we're not being imprisoned for our faith because Christians are being imprisoned or subject to forced conversions all across the world today. That is a real thing. They're subject to forced conversions, forced to worship in secret, and in some cases it's, it's only possible to deliver a Bible to a country through illegal covert operations. That's right, the Bible cartel is a real thing. So in some ways we can, we can interpret this verse, who is to condemn, in an unfortunately literal sense. Right? Some literally do receive condemnation, a guilty verdict because of their faith. So for those people, I would imagine that verse 34 is of inestimable comfort. In fact, once we uh, close the sermon, I'm going to pray for some of these Christians too, but, um, but that isn't the only thing we need to think about when we look at condemnation. Because for each and every one of us, Satan takes it a step further as well. He pronounces condemnation on Christians across the globe, right? We could think of Satan in some ways as like the, the prosecuting attorney in a heavenly courtroom. He's like the DA. Um, and that's, that's a fair representation because Satan literally means accuser. So it's a fair characterization to think that he's accusing us and condemning us before the Father. Um, he stands before God and he says, that one, that one's guilty, God. Don't you see all the sin that they've committed? Do you ever feel guilty or condemned for the sins you've done? Do you ever feel like you've overheard the devil speaking about you in that way? If you do, and if you're a Christian, then the devil has deceived you, and it's not true. Don't believe the lies. Because the answer in verse 34 to the question, who is to condemn? Paul says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. Now, that's an interesting answer, isn't it? Like, condemnation, and it says Jesus is the one who died. Those, it almost seems like a non sequitur between the question and the answer. But here's Paul's logic. Paul doesn't say that you are guiltless. Right? He doesn't say, uh, and, and he doesn't say that because he knows that he himself is a sinner. He talks about that all over the New Testament. He calls himself the chief of sinners. So he doesn't say, 
you're guiltless. He knows that we have sinned. He knows that sin is a real problem. And he wrote earlier in the book of Romans that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. He's not saying that sin magically disappears. Because he knows that the way that you deal with real condemnation is by punishing the guilty. The punishment that you and I deserve for sin. But what does Paul point to? He says Jesus Christ is the one who died. Implicit in that response is this idea of substitution. Jesus was condemned instead of us, as a substitute for us. His point is that, yes, we do need to deal with this punishment for sin, and it has been done in Jesus. The gospel in this passage is that the condemnation of death, which rightfully should fall on us, belongs to Jesus instead of us. That happened in, in a couple different ways. First, Jesus was condemned before Pontius Pilate, right? He was brought on trial. He received the death sentence, death on the cross. And he did not reveal his glory to them right at that moment, like he could have, right? Just like at his baptism when a voice came from heaven and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That could have happened again when Jesus was on trial. But Jesus knows very well that he needed to suffer the penalty of death for us. So he didn't do that. But also, Jesus knows what it's like to feel condemned, to actually be condemned, because he, was, he too was condemned by others, and he understands and he sympathizes with those who have been condemned. But the bigger point is that when he was condemned, he atoned for our sins. When, when the sins were laid on him before the Father, he received the condemnation that we should have borne. Let me explain that a little further. In the economy of God's justice, Jesus took on our condemnation and the chastisement and the judgment that was meant for me and that was meant for you as a result of our own sins that we have committed against a holy and righteous God against his righteous standards. He was condemned for the sins that we committed. And our guilt was dealt with by somebody else. The guilt of our condemnation was removed because of Jesus' death. So praise God for this wonderful news. Amen. Amen. And in verse 34 it goes on. It says, Jesus is the one who died and more than that, who was raised. It means that even though Jesus was condemned, the sentence of death wasn't even strong enough to keep him dead. It wasn't enough to overcome the righteousness of Christ. So this resurrection, it actually is a, it has a tremendous part to play in our justification. Just one of the reasons that the resurrection is important to our justification is for proof. It is proof that Jesus could withstand and overcome the condemnation of sin. Proof that Jesus actually has the power to justify. We can be confident and sure that we are not condemned any longer because of the resurrection. 
Because if, if Jesus couldn't have withstood it, he'd still be dead, right? But he's not dead. He was raised to demonstrate just how righteous he was. So righteous, in fact, that death itself could not hold him down. And after he was raised to, to life, in verse 34, it says uh, that he was raised and is now at the right hand of God who is interceding for us. So to this day, Jesus sits at the right hand of God and he, he intercedes for us. Now, why is that relevant? Why does Paul want us to know that he now is ascended in the throne room? Well, let's remember that courtroom scene again, right? If it is Satan who's saying, this one is guilty, who is, what is Jesus doing in the heavenly courtroom? What does it mean to intercede for us? Let's think of him like the defense attorney now. And he's standing before God the Father, the ultimate judge, and he's saying, see that one there? That's your son. He's innocent. That's your daughter. She bears my name. She's found righteous. He's the best defense attorney in the history of history because he's won every single case. So when the question is, who is to condemn? The clear answer is, nobody can condemn you when you're found in Jesus Christ. So through all of these questions, I think we can see one picture emerging. And that is this. Whether you find that the world is against you, whether it accuses you, or whether it condemns you, even if you stand condemned in the eyes of the world, remember your justification. This is why it matters for today. God says you're not guilty. God didn't even spare his own son in order to justify you. And that has a liberating impact on our lives. We don't need to have any fear anymore because we're already declared to be righteous in God's eyes. So when you leave here, that means that you don't need to have this clever response to every time anybody brings a charge against you. You don't need to be able to fend off the accusations. You don't need to make sure everybody knows that you are right and they are wrong, in fact. Because Jesus himself was most definitely right and everyone around him was wrong. And yet what did he do? He didn't lord it over anybody. Instead, he withstood the condemnation. Why? So that you could be justified by his righteousness. And all you need to do is remember. Remember. Remember who you're meant to be justified by. Not in the eyes of the world, but in the eyes of God. It is God who justifies, and he has justified you through the righteousness and atoning death of Jesus Christ. God graciously gives all things to Christians. Since you are justified, you have nothing left to fear in this world. Let's pray together. Lord God, we know and we recognize that we are justified just of you, as you have said in this letter. Please, God, help us to remember this when we face hardship and, and people who are against us in our workplaces, um, in our communities. When we face hardship of all kinds, all sorts of accusations and condemnations, God, please remind us of our justification because you alone hold justification. We pray for the Christians in North Korea where Christianity is persecuted and they're being condemned all over the place. We pray for Christians in Somalia and Libya and Eritrea and Africa. 
with Islamic sects persecuting in Nigeria, where the southern area is Christian, but Islamic militants attack without reprimand across the country. In Afghanistan, in Yemen, in Pakistan, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and in many parts of the Middle East, in China, in many parts of India, and the distant east. God, distance separates us from these Christians, but we are united as one body in Christ. So we pray for those who are literally dying, who are persecuted and have charges against them, or who are condemned just for placing faith in you. God, would you impress upon them the justification of Jesus, knowing that he died to face condemnation, that you, God, will grant to them all the things that they are when they are publicly declared the sons and daughters of God in glory. Their faith is not in vain, God. Remind them of that, but will lead them to eternal life. But we too, God, live in a secularizing world. Our, our faith puts us in the target and then the crosshairs of many would see, who would seek to destroy us and seek to destroy our faith in you. May it never be, Lord God. Our faith is in the solid rock, our Redeemer, Jesus. It's in his name that we trust because it is him who has justified us. So we pray this in loving adoration of him who is our justification. Amen.